0: Hello and welcome to In Unison. I'm Zane Fiala. And I'm Giacomo G. Grigoli. And this is our podcast all about new choral music and the composers, conductors, choristers, and administrators who bring it to life. Let's start the show!
1: Hello and welcome to this mini-season of In Unison. For the next several episodes, we're partnering with Chorus America to bring you a sneak preview of what's coming up at the Chorus America annual conference being held this year in our hometown of San Francisco. We hope you'll enjoy this opportunity to get to know a bit more about the conference's speakers and their areas of expertise, and especially to get to know these folks on a personal level. We hope to see you in San Francisco for the Chorus America conference May 31st through June 2nd, 2023. More information is available at ChorusAmerica.org. And now, on to the show. On today's
0: episode, our guest is Dr. Antonio C. Kyler, professor, author, and founder of Kyler Consulting. We're going to dive into a discussion about access, diversity, equity, inclusion, and Dr. Kyler himself. We're sure you're going to enjoy hearing about his journey as much as we did. But let's start off with some music to set the stage for this conversation. Here is Chains, written by Gary Hines and featured on the album The Very Best of Sounds of Blackness. Joining us today on In Unison is Dr. Antonio C. Kyler, and Antonio is Professor of Music in Entrepreneurship and Leadership in the School of Music, Theater and Dance at the University of Michigan, as well as the author of a great book titled Access, Diversity, Equity and Inclusion in Cultural Organizations. He is also editor of Arts Management, Cultural Policy, and the African Diaspora, and has authored and co-authored 25 peer-reviewed articles that appear in numerous peer-reviewed journals. In 2020, Antonio also founded Kyler Consulting LLC, a Black-owned arts consultancy that helps cultural organizations maximize their performance and community relevance through access, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Today, we'll be chatting a bit about Dr. Kyler's plenary session at Chorus America in June, titled The Great Imagining, Envisioning and Manifesting an Anti-Racist Choral Field. Just enough to get our audience excited. But really, we hope to get to know him just a little bit better. So Giacomo, why don't you kick things off with a little icebreaker?
1: For sure. Here we go. Uh, Antonio, it's great to have you on the show. Zane and I both love a great meal. Do you have a favorite restaurant in San Francisco you're excited to come back to during this conference? And can we offer folks some of your recommendations? I also enjoy a great meal. I am
2: a, a huge foodie. Um, and so, actually, the last time I was in San Francisco, I was kind of um, passing through really quickly. Um, I had a meeting there, so I didn't really get to spend a lot of time in San Francisco because I was headed to UC Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And I, But I did have this amazing Thai food in Berkeley. Um, And the place was called Thai Basil uh, Cuisine. It was down from Hotel Durant.
3: Mm. And
2: um, it was so good that the whole time that I was there, which was about three days, um, every time I had lunch, I ate at that Thai
3: restaurant.
2: All right. <laughs> so, so, and that's the thing, like when I find what I'm looking for, because sometimes I don't know what I'm looking for until my taste buds say, hey, this is it. Um, then I'll go back and I'll like, you know, become a repeat um, <laughs> um, eater there. And so um, if. Folks who are listening have an opportunity to um, get on the BART and head to uh, UC Berkeley or even like Oakland, I think, um, also has some interesting, amazing restaurants. Uh, I would try to find that Thai Basil Cuisine place because, um, yeah. The typhoon
0: was amazing mm, yeah absolutely we were just chatting with melanie Moore actually and uh she lives in oakland and we were talking about how the east bay you know needs to get more love san francisco is fine but the east bay i'm a big big fan are there any um any things that you're looking forward to doing while you're in san francisco when you come out for the conference
2: yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm, you know, a big opera fan. And um, this will be after the conference is over. I'm looking forward to um, attending the performance of Madama Butterfly that San mm,
3: Francisco
2: is putting on. True. And what I love about it is that Um, Most of the creative team is of Asian descent. And so, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing a production where you have this quotient of Asian influence on this kind of like operatic relic um, and how they treat, you know, this, this this piece of operatic music, um, and this st- amazing story, right? Um, so I'm really looking forward to that because the last time I saw a production of Madama Butterfly, the soprano Ailan Tzu, she sang, um, Chocho-san. And this was in Orlando, I think my junior year of, um, undergrad. Um, and she was amazing. Like, I mean, wonderful, but the entire creative team was not of Asian descent.
1: And so I, I'm, I'm curious to see how it'll be different.
0: Yeah, that sounds fascinating.
1: It's exciting to see this trend happening in a lot of these very familiar pieces of work as a as a new way, to, a new lens, really, to see them, which perhaps should have been the original lens in the first place. I know that there's like a couple of productions of sometimes specific overtures, if you're talking specifically about Asian descent, and mm-hmm. and that lens through which to see um, old works, it's really remarkable. Yeah, I might I might be sitting in the audience with you. That sounds like a really fun thing to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Uh, Dr. Kyler Antonio, uh, you're going to be leading a session on anti-racism and how we can envision and manifest this through every aspect of our choral music experience. So we'd love to ask you a few questions about your inspirations on this topic and what makes you such a sought-after choral leader, speaker, and musical facilitator. Maybe you can first tell folks a bit about why you decided to found Kyler Consulting, LLC.
2: Yeah, so um, after the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, um, my spirit was vexed, and um, particularly two days, well, actually, the the very next day after George Floyd was murdered um, in Tallahassee, where I was living at the time, there was a trans man, um, Tony McDade, who was murdered as well by the cops, and so if you think about it and remember it was the middle of covid So our emotions were really high over that. And then these like consistent like attacks from the state on Black people. And so about two weeks after um, George Floyd's murder, I just walked around like a zombie. I was really just, I was like spiritually just completely discombobulated. Um, Like, I, you know, angry is one of the emotions I felt. And, um, you know, just confused. I mean, it was just horrible. And and what I was doing at the time as a way of kind of meditating and keeping myself healthy, I would walk around this huge park that we had in Tallahassee um, called Cascades Park. And so, uh, and I would walk really, really fast, right? Like I'm just walking, 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 speed walking. Um, and people don't take speed walking seriously, but let me just tell you, you can burn a lot of calories speed walking. You don't have to run all the time. Speed walking is just as effective. And on one of those walks, I was asking the multiverse or asking the spirit or asking my ancestors, these things have just happened. What am I to do with them? How am I supposed to make sense of these things? I'm, I'm, I'm a professor of arts administration. I believe in the powers of, of, of arts and culture to do things phenomenally for people and humans. What am I supposed to do as a response to this thing that has happened that has me spiritually vexed? And the answer that came to me was, um, you need to support arts and cultural organizations in changing. You've been sitting on this idea of a consulting practice now for 10 years. Stop it and do the work. Because arts and culture, there are these powerful ways in which we connect with each other as humans. Um, And so I said, okay, I know what I have to do. And I started being very intentional about getting my act together around organizing this consulting practice. To really help cultural organizations grapple with the change management that is needed to fully benefit from access, diversity, equity and inclusion. To center people and to to, to make it human centric to the point that you understand that being oppressive um, is detrimental not only to the organization, but of course to people and so that's um really the reason why that's what compelled me to to do this work and you know um at this point i'm a i'm a one person shop i have colleagues that i do work with as independent contractors um and we we do amazing work i'm also one of those people who um i'm not doing this for the money um you know like in fact if there was a way that people would value your time that was not so transactional with money i would want to do it for free but people don't take it as seriously unless they're paying for it and um but at the same time when folks have come to me to say hey do you do executive leadership i'm like that's not my thing but i know five other people who do that i'll give them give them their name so i don't feel compelled to like Hog up opportunities and be greedy in that way, because I also want to enable the small businesses that um, you know, people who are doing work that is in juxtaposition with my work or that is also going to bolster my work, and so I look for those opportunities as well.
0: Hmm. What a great story.
1: Yeah, it's a great I mean, it's a great place to start. I, I love hearing um, you know, I, I was a tad cynical during that same summer, as I think most of us felt. And it's good to see that the message is continuing, that the work is continuing, that everyone is still leaning in and not forgetting the lessons that we learned during that period of time. I'm
2: really, really pleased with what I'm seeing happening in the creative sector and that people are not um, regressing and backsliding and going back to this kind of, this place of like white appeasement and white abatement around Um, race and and really the challenge of race because it is a wicked problem Um, and I don't mean like wicked in terms of like it is evil right like that is true but um social scientists have these ways of thinking about these problems that have been enduring problems that we as humans have yet to figure out how to actually address them and so yeah you're right like to it, it is heartening for me and especially working with chorus america and choruses Right, who've decided that, you know, we really need to lean more deeply into this work. And what awaits them on the other side for taking this, this, this path, right? Like it's it's like that poem by Robert Frost, uh, the road not taken, right? But taking the road not taken, what will choruses and chorus America discover that they've been missing all along?
1: hmm Indeed. I love the idea of choral music as being sort of the a microcosm or just a perfect example of um think global act local i mean what's more local than connecting with the people in your own community doing tours making music maybe with some people that you can just broaden your mind and and be inspired by mm-hmm. and speaking of that kind of inspiration we want to Get into a little something with you maybe a bit more informal, which is a yeah. session we like to call the chorister who, where maybe you can dive a little bit more informally into some of the things that inspire you. Absolutely. So we'll tell you the chorister who, or choral leader, um, composer or singer or administrator, and then you fill in the blank for the prompt. Okay. So here's, here's the first important one for you. Who is the choral leader who inspired you first to be involved with choral music?
2: It was um, this woman at my church. Um, I grew up Pentecostal. My dad was a pastor and my mom is an evangelist. And um, I was in the children's choir at the Winter Haven Church of God by Faith. And this woman, um, uh, at the time, we call her Sister Ovel Andrews. And um, she had a friend, Sister Marianne Rollins, and Sister Marianne Rollins' daughter, Drina. All of these folks were like over the children's choir. And the one thing that I remember about Sister Andrews that she said one night, um, she said, every song carries a message. And, you know, as a kid, I'm like, it's really strange that I kind of held on to that, right? And so as I got older and matriculated through high school and college and as a voice major, I always, whenever I would sing, tried to convey the message of the song. Mm -hmm. Because she said that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's I, I. so often, at least for, for us in our chorus, where we're focused on the nitty gritty of all the little details, sometimes we forget that really what's most important is the message of the song deeper. You know, that's a deeper meaning and that's far more important. If you can really bring that to the surface, then if you forgot to cut off on the end of two or you just, you know, Nobody get a knows. plosive T in the knows.
1: middle. They remember how you made them feel. Yeah, exactly. Them the story. exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Okay. How about uh, another another question in this line? Um, the choir and or choral leader that most inspires the choral work you do today? Who does it right?
2: Um, I would say Alicia Lee. Who? in Baltimore. I wow, like she is an inspiration. I just watch her and I go, man, I want to be like her when I grow up.
1: What's her organization? What who did she sing with? Um, she
2: has with? a a, um, a girls choir. She's also president and CEO of the Baltimore Children's and Youth Fund, um, and so she 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 wears a lot of hats. But um, I, she understands that choral singing is a way to really. It is a way to completely transform young people and specifically you know um, young girls and and what why is that so much needed right now, right? We've been I've been reading these articles in The Washington Post and New York Times about like how girls are really struggling right now with all of the social media and you know anxiety and you know even the young woman who uh, recently you know shot the people in uh, Nashville, right like um, and so having something that's a, a safe and brave space for young girls that brings them together
1: around choral music. It's very, very powerful. Hmm. OK, here's one for you. Who is the composer or choral piece whose work never fails to give you the chills?
3: Joel Thompson's um, Hold Fast to Dreams. Like, oh my
2: god. It's amazing, right? Like, and I was texting with him recently, and I said, dude, like, I listen to that song every day. Because I'm like waiting for the chills to stop, even talking about it right now. Like I'm getting chills because I'm
1: thinking about it like fast to dreams. Is there a particular recording of it that you like or one that you refer Um, back to?
2: Well, there's a recording of him accompanying, um, I think it's the Atlanta, um, it's a choir in Atlanta. I can't remember the full name. That's on YouTube. That's amazing. And then there's a Brigham Young University performance of it. On, um on iTunes and so between those two, I think you'll have a you'll you'll I, I, you'll see what I'm talking
1: about. I love that it's a tough time to hold on to optimism and yeah to, to center yourself and remember your own vision yeah I, I think we could all use that we'll definitely link to that
0: yeah, absolutely. okay, how about uh oh this is a good one the piece of music that you have found most challenging to perform for whatever reason.
2: Bernstein's Chichester songs.
0: what's the reason behind that being difficult for you
2: o m g the rhythm'm a'm <laughs> a'm a and And the first time I performed it was my junior year in high school, and um Dr. Andrew um, Andre Thomas mm-hmm. chose me to sing the bass solo at ACDA on a choir. <laughs> Um, no pressure. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I, remember, I remember auditioning and singing the like in the uh, the rehearsals. I had it right. Then we did like this um, audition right before the performance, or this like kind of warm up before the performance, and I messed up the rhythm in the performance. And he was like, "Are you okay?" <laughs> 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 I was
3: like, "I was like, oh my god,
2: I, I got to get it together, right? You know, so uh, so much pressure for a, pressure for a junior in high school, but um, that is definitely."
1: I think the most challenging piece that I've ever performed. Wow. How about a choir that you've recently discovered? Whose programming excites you?
2: Um, I'll say the choir that uh, I always knew that the FAMU concert choir was amazing. But recently, about two weeks ago, I was in Tallahassee again, um, because, you know, I'm I'm a big fanboy of Joel Thompson's, right? So he did a premiere of a piece called Walk in Dignity that was inspired by the bus boycott in Tallahassee. And um, the FAMU Concert Choir performed it with him. And so I went to see the premiere of this performance, and the FAMU Concert Choir, like, always knew that they were amazing but this performance for me reaffirmed just how amazing they were. And I was just kind of like, wow. And it's such an interesting juxtaposition to have that performance happening at the same time as we're seeing these political things happening in Florida with you know, the fight with Disney, the um, you know um, identity-based infliction of human suffering on all of these different marginalized groups, unnecessarily, right? And so it was a really good, um, another piece of inspiration, right, to see that these young people were able to perform in, you know, this, this space, pushing back and resisting some of the BS coming out of um, politics there.
0: Yeah. I love to see so many, so much inspiration that that's not just musical inspiration. You're, you're drawing inspiration from just the human experience, which is, wow. you know, really beautiful. So I, I think now maybe we might pivot and talk a little bit about your session at Chorus America. Now, of course, we don't want to give everything away. We want folks to come to the conference and, and tune in at that time. But perhaps you might be able to give us a little bit of a teaser about what we can expect to learn at your Chorus America session.
2: Yeah, so I'm really excited to be co, um, co-producing, co-facilitating this session with a colleague, um, Carla uh, Rivera, she's the new executive director of the Arts Administrators of Color Network, and this kind of came about um, from a discussion that we were having one day with Christy McKinney and um, Karen Castro at Chorus America. And so um, one of the things that occurred to me is that with the attacks on, on um, diversity, equity, and inclusion right now, and even people from the left feeling like DEI doesn't go far enough to actually change anything, I've been wondering about our language, right? And what is it that we're really trying to do? And so I thought, hmm, I wonder what would happen if we went on the offensive. Because you know, to say that racism exists is a defensive stance. And sometimes people get their backs up and they get a bee in their bonnet over racism when you say, "Oh, well, that's racist, right?" Or this is happening, this you know, as a result of racism. So I wonder what would happen if we went on the offensive and started to use the language of anti-racism and start to discuss about what it means and um, what it would feel like. What it would sound like? What would it smell like? What would it taste like? Um, um, What would it look like if we were to establish a definition of anti-racism, one that is not overly complicated, one that is discernible, digestible, and we started to enact what that lives like and and manifest that in the coral field, how much better off would we be? Who would be in the choirs as a result of it? Um, How would it invite uh, deeper connections and relationships with our communities as a result of it? Um, And how would it put us closer to or on a path towards liberation for all of us? Right, because, you know, some folks like to think of it as People of the global majority, they're victims and they're, you know, casualties of racism. And yes, there are casualties of racism. And yes, they have been, um, you know, hurt by it. But white people have been hurt by it as well. And we never center white people enough in the discussion about how have you been harmed by racism, right? What has it meant to hold up the weight of whiteness and collude with whiteness? How has it actually taking you away from your humanity to be um, kind of a co-facilitator or accomplice to whiteness and white supremacy culture and all those things. And so sometimes having those conversations are very difficult for people. And so I wonder if like, we adopt a framework of anti-racism, would it help us to see that We need each other. People of the global majority need white people. White people need people of the global majority. And if we all partner together using choral music as the intervention, the bridge to bring us together, how much better off would the choral industry be?
1: Hearing that description, the first thing that comes to mind, and I think one thing that'll be useful for people who are listening, would be to ask you, who should come to your session?
2: Everyone who is interested in transformation for the coral industry.
0: Which should be everybody. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) And so is there anything that people or maybe folks can do? Because I think people are going to be coming in with different levels of knowledge and experience. And some folks might feel hesitant. Like they were like, I don't know. Am I sure? Am I ready for this? What do I do? Anything you got to do to prepare or to be to be engaged and excited for your session, anything you might recommend reading or just come as you are and you'll learn some stuff you've never learned before.
2: I think um, you have to do, there's some deep emotional excavating of, of like barriers that might keep you from coming. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: I think that's where you should direct the pre-work because really, I think once you get in the space, we're co-constructing this knowledge together, right? Um, You know, I, I learned something today. Um, I don't like to really call myself an expert as much as I like to call myself a committed learner,
3: hmm.
2: right? Like I've been doing this work since middle school and I remain surprised by new things, new ways of knowing, being, um, connecting with humans around this work. And so I think um, people who are interested in transformation in the coral industry, do the work to make yourself vulnerable. Um, To get deeply connected to your humanity so that when you come into the space, um, you're not hindered by thinking about, well, like, you know, do I need to be this way? Do I need to be perfect? None of us are perfect, right? Like, that's one of those characteristics of white supremacy culture that we should be seeking to subvert. That um, like, And I love that, like, if you don't perfectly stop the sound on, you know, the beat of two, like, does that completely ruin the performance? No, actually, some of those imperfections or, you know, um, you know, things that you don't rehearse make the performance even that much more unique because they happen in those spaces. So really, I think it's about getting yourself emotionally prepared to be vulnerable to be curious, Um, and I think also whatever you can do to cultivate a love for humanity, because that's what it's about. I think the reason why we do what we do in the choral music industry um, is, you know, about a love for people and a love, because like, think about it, choral music, um, um, choruses, uh, choral organizations, like they touch so many different people. And and so um, if there is a way to lean into those connections and those relationships. Don't you want to do it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. What, uh, <clears throat> you know, of course, your session is only going to be a certain amount of time, so there's probably some things that you're going to have to edit out um, and maybe not include, but if, uh, if you were able to, what maybe what's a, a tidbit that might not make it into your session but uh, that you'd like to give us a little bit of that behind-the-scenes knowledge right now?
2: Yeah, I think I would say um, after the session is over, what is the first thing that you're going to seek to change? Hmm. Right? Like once once you've participated in this discussion, this work that we're doing, what is the first thing you're gonna seek to change? And maybe that answer is I'm gonna seek to change myself, right? Like because the way that I've been thinking about this, right, has been wrong. That, you know, like racism is this and this whole anti-racism framing it takes people a a little bit of time to kind of catch up to it i remember i was presenting a paper in seoul south uh south korea in december and i i said to this um audience that anti-racism is more profitable than racism and i said If we exist in a capitalist society, why do we insist on being racist if anti-racism is more profitable? Right. And so the cognitive acrobats that folks had to do to kind of catch up with that, they were like, wait, can you say that again? And I said it (laughs) to be anti-racist is more profitable because capitalism says, right, it's a free market we're not going to discriminate against anybody and yet we insist on being racist which is not profitable hmm. economic theories show that racism harms the person who is the um like receiver of the racism but also the person who is perpetuating or or, or um performing the racism so
1: i thought we were capitalists yeah <laughs> Right? <laughs> it's a straight I mean there's times when there's a straight line between those two things like the folks who won't bake cakes for people it's like yeah. really? you are literally wh- why are you a capitalist or a racist? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: It's almost like implicitly they're saying I'm going to um, take pay the, for my hate. Um, yeah, I'm going to pay for my hate, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Silly. Yeah, so I found myself talking about that a lot when I, I so I work for a company that's based out of Canada. And so I meet and talk to a lot of Canadians and oftentimes certain things come up about, you know, Americans, quote unquote. Um, and they'll say, well, how come, how come, you know, there is an emotion, a movement to like do that across the board, across the country. And I said, it all comes down to ideology. You know, these folks, they believe something so strongly that they're willing to ignore the truth and the reality and logic because they believe so firmly in this ideology that they've held onto for however long. And I think racism is is kind of in that same vein. It's an ideology. It's a belief set that some people just don't want to give up. And I think that if we did, as you're saying, we would all be far, far better off.
2: Absolutely. I, I, I totally agree with it. And I'm committed to the practice of doing what i can do now cuz seven generations from now i you know i won't be here of course but i don't want people to be having these same discussions
0: yeah
2: right and and um we the civil rights legislation did what it could do to transform but i think we're now at a growing uh, pain uh in our life cycle as a country where we have to like refresh and rethink our our strategies and i think anti-racism is the way forward
0: yeah, absolutely. and
2: actually anti-oppression, because the same like hypothesis that I just shared with you all about racism and its lack of profitability, I believe goes for heterosexism and sexism and cisgenderism, right? Like because you have to think about all those people that you are inflicting identity-based human suffering on, they have buying power mm-hmm. and their collective buying power is about thirty to forty trillion dollars annually. So if you're discriminating against them as, you know, Governor DeSantis and certain political parties, um, you are writing yourself out of access to thirty to forty trillion dollars.
0: <laughs> just seems so it's so silly. <laughs>
1: oh, oh Rhonda. <laughs> <laughs> Help me, Rhonda. Help, help me, Rhonda. <laughs> this has been a really fun conversation, uh, Antonio. I've, I've already learned so much, and I'm, I'm looking forward to your session at the Course America conference, which is coming up in San Francisco, May 31st to, to June 2nd this year, ChorusAmerica.org to check it out. Where can folks find you online before we come and meet you at the conference?
2: Yeah, you can find me at kylerconsultingllc.com, Uh That's where my website is. And... Um, I am pretty responsive to email, so
1: yeah, hit me up. It's a really cool website, too. <laughs> it's a
0: really, it looks so good. I've been <laughs> surfing around on it for a few I'm days. I'm stealing some of the really, stuff really from there. Good, really yeah. well designed.
1: I'll tell
2: Den that you all said that because uh, she does amazing work. Yes. And she's actually in San Francisco, so or in the Bay Area, so I'm looking forward to maybe grabbing a meal with her.
0: Yeah, awesome. Is there anyone else that you'd like to, to shout out before we uh, say farewell yes. for the day?
2: Um, so my colleague at um the San Francisco Opera who does DEI work for them, um, Chip, I'd love to, I'm hoping to connect with him. Um, of course, Karen, Catherine, Liza, uh, Christy, uh, Mike, all of those folks at Chorus America, they are amazing to work with. Let me just tell you, like every time I get on a Zoom with them, I'm like, you know, I I I'm so excited to bring like my best self and all of the things because, I mean, we idiot, we talk. It's just, it's wonderful. Um, And also my colleague, Adam Fong um, at the Hewlett Foundation, I'm hoping to also connect with him. So um, I'm looking, like Course America Conference is um, one of the conferences I look for annually uh, to attending. And so connecting with all of my colleagues, Eugene Rogers, Andre Thomas, um, you know, Molly, I mean, all of those folks. So, um, yeah,
0: I love it. And maybe, maybe we might get you to wrap up with just a little bit of a personal story for us. Cause I'm pretty interested myself in, in researching you and your story. I came across this story about your experience in middle school that kind of set you on the path that you're on now, um, to focusing so much of your career on ADEI. Um, I wonder if you might just give us just a little hint of what that story is, what that experience was like in, as a middle school student to be, uh, involved in that?
2: Yeah, I think my um, teachers recognized that um, I was bullied, right? Um, So that's why I kind of have this, you know, um, wanting to fight for the underdog, right? But I also do so subjectively, like, I am not objective about it, I I have a direct conflict of interest, right, because, you know, I'm Black, I I have disabilities, I'm same-gender-loving, I am uh, spiritual, I'm not Christian, even though I was raised Pentecostal, right? So I have, you know, marginalized identities, but I also am privileged by being cis, male, and uh, upper middle class, right? And so I understand the duality and I aim to subvert my privilege. And um, this is something that I learned in middle school, right? And I think my teacher saw, oh, he's really, but he's also smart. And he also cares about people, right? One of my my reading middle school teachers, she said to me, Antonio, never let go of your optimism. And I was like, well, you know, I'm a Sagittarius. It kind of comes with it. <laughs> 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 and so, yeah, and then of course being raised Pentecostal and having a dad that was a pastor who really practiced servant leadership, um, those were major influences on me and how I viewed the world. And, what I saw as possibilities for myself
0: mm, that's beautiful I think I think that more teachers need to be in tune with their students like that you know really be able to recognize the students that have those special gifts and and encourage them as yours did with you
2: yeah I was so fortunate and, and I, I, I I agree with you because you know when you when you do that students blossom. Yeah. Um, I, I see it in my own students. Um, I've been able to teach freshmen all the way up to doc students. And um, to be able to connect with them on that human-to-human level as well is is a really powerful experience. Yeah.
1: Pay teachers what they deserve, damn it. Absolutely.
2: Amen. Absolutely. Because that's one of the things I'm afraid of, too, is that when teachers don't have the freedom to connect with their students in the ways in which they need to because of the constraints of of um, idiotic and hateful policies, you know, it really um, constrains the potentiality for blossoming students. So um, absolutely, pay, pay teachers for what they're worth and also grant them the autonomy to do their job.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, this has just been such a fantastic conversation uh dr kyler we just really appreciate you taking the time i i'm super excited to meet you at the conference um, I in, know you all just a little over a month it looks like so um you know it's going to be great to have you out here in california and get to meet you and and hear your your session i'm very excited so
1: and get some thai food mm-hmm. and get some
0: thai food yeah <laughs> <laughs> for sure well thank you for your time
2: thank you all so much
0: yeah it's been great Let's wrap up today with a little more delicious gospel music. This is Total Praise, written and performed by Richard Smallwood with the group Vision. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the In Unison Podcast.
1: Be sure to check out episode extras and subscribe at inunisonpodcast.com. You can follow us on all social media at inunisonpod. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts
0: to let us know what you think. Lighting cues and choralography designed by Chorus Dolores, who's ready for their moment to shine. In Unison is produced and recorded by Mission Orange Studios. Our transcripts have been diligently edited by IOCSF member and friend of the pod, Fausto Daus. And our theme music is Mr. Puffy, written by Avi Bortnik, arranged by Paul Kim, and performed by the Danish vocal jazz ensemble, Dynamic, on their debut album, This Is Dynamic. Special thanks to Paul Kim for permission. Please be sure to check them out at www.dynamicjazz.dk.